Hey everyone, this is Sam with a Paranormal Review. Everyone in my Facebook group that's called Nick Groft, Portals to Hell and Ghost Adventures, has been telling me about this new show called Haunted in the Heartland. It has just started and it's with Steve Shippey. Now, I'm going to be real honest with you. I've never heard of Steve Shippey and don't know a whole lot about him. But I thought since everyone was kind of buzzing about it and the Travel Channel had picked it up, um, I thought, well, I probably should check it out a little bit. The only thing is, is... I didn't realize that the Travel Channel really wasn't making a big deal out of it. They, I don't feel, have been really advertising a whole lot about it. So I had to look it up on um, my, I have Dish Network, I had to look it up on my guide and actually find it. Um, like I said, it's haunted in the heartland. and. What I decided to start with is just the very first one. Uh, season 1, Episode 1, it's called The Watchman, And it aired on February 21st, 2020. And like I said, it stars Steve Shippey. Um, and just looking over the God review of it, just, I don't know, didn't really sound all that great sounded like just kind of a typical paranormal show uh it my god the village of merrill michigan uh is sent to steve shippey is sent to investigate an evil entity tormenting a young girl and i thought well evil entity that sounds like ghost adventures and it's investigating you know a private house and tormenting this young girl sounds like ghost hunters or ghost nation so is that what this is so really wasn't sure about it as i sat down and, and turned it on um i thought it had a pretty good informative opening um it looks m menacing without being overwhelming i guess and it actually told me who steve shippy is because like i said i had never heard of him he's a paranormal investigator that also is a documentarian he's a filmmaker that documents um, different topics and that he has actually had personal experiences growing up of haunted things in the heartland and so just with that opening with him you know experiencing it as a child and then him doing documentaries and also having an interest in paranormal investigations this to me just sound, sounded like a really good premise for him to kind of all put together plus i realized you know i don't know a whole lot of hauntings in the heartland i mean when you think of it you've got Beatty mansion you know you've got the the Liska Axe House. Um, you, you've got a lot of areas down in Kansas and in Missouri and, and places like that. And yes, like Beatty Mansion used to be a private home, but with Ghost Hunters, the originals, being on the East Coast, you don't really in in the seasons i've watched of ghost hunters and i've told you before in in the podcast i haven't watched a lot of the seasons i think i'm up to season three they really haven't expanded they've stayed mostly on the east coast yes yes i know they went to ireland yes i know they they went out to california and all of that yes i know and i'm getting there 
as they start traveling. But I haven't found a lot of, you know, private houses in the Heartland. So just the premise, just watching in the opening, this made me, hey, let's give this a chance. This isn't hokey. This isn't some guy that has zero background trying to be someone he's not. He's not trying to be ghost hunters. He's not trying to be ghost adventurers or anything like that. And so... I am interested in this, especially with his history of, you know, making documentaries. I don't know what about that exactly makes me want to believe him more, but the skeptic in me hears the word, you know, document, documentary or documenting or... Um, documentarian or anything like that and I and I want to feel like they have some kind of legitimacy I I don't know but anyway um, they start off telling you that Merrill Michigan has a population of 735 and that it was established back in the 1850s as a farming community and that it's kind of always had this weird energy that a lot of people in the town feel it and we meet Mike Medcalf. He's a resident of the area and he's actually whose house we're going to be investigating. Mike and Celeste live together and they talked about how um, Mike had seen this building that looked like a general store growing up and he'd always talked about owning this building so he bought this house about 15 years ago and his wife celeste said that she feels like you know the activity in the house is escalating they have a son named josh whose granddaughter adabel used to live with them but they had to leave and they kind of leave that open-ended not really telling you yet why they had to leave or anything like that i had to rewind it a couple times because i've never heard the name adabel and i thought that was that was interesting myself and mike said that he believed that whatever it is in his house is trying to basically destroy his family maybe his family bonds or or something like that and he believes that it may be time that he actually may need to sell his home and so i didn't get a feeling one way or another about mike and celeste sometimes when you watch these shows um it's almost like you feel for them or you kind of don't know what to think of them or anything like that but just with this one i didn't get a i don't know a feel for them so we meet steve and steve says that he's gonna hurry to the house because the granddaughter adabel is about the same age he was when he started experiencing his own activity if they do a flashback where he's 10 years old and shows him having an extremely traumatizing event that he had to deal with and it that made it a little more appealing to me or real because it felt to me like tr- truly Steve wanted to go help this young girl. I like the very next part. They label things. Um, they timestamp things. For those of you who listened to uh, this pos- podcast and the different episodes, then you know that I like things timestamped. I like how this says day one at 3 p.m. Um, meeting with the family. I like it when they tell me kind of what they're doing, what day they are on, and and everything. Steve says that you know the house definitely looks like an old general store and it does from the pictures they show both old and 
uh, now pictures of their house and it definitely does look like a general store now as we meet mike and celeste and adabelle um and steve mics them up he starts talking to Mike, and Mike says that, that this particular building was built in 1845, and that it was a general store that had a family that lived towards the back part of it and up above it. But it was also where the post office used to deliver mail. And that the farmers in the area, because it was a general store, were coming in to buy things, and they would just pick up their mail there. However, the postmaster general, you know, the government always has to step in, the postmaster general said, well, we can't deliver to the general store, because this isn't considered a town. So, the owner of at that time of the general store named the town Iva I-V-A after his mom and a lot of people now stop and reminisce that this used to be the town of Iva it's now the town of Merrill and that this used to be a general store but as the reminiscent, Mike makes a point to say that he always invites them to come in, but they won't come in. They believe this whole area is haunted, and that they believe the house is haunted. Mike says that he started re renovations on the building in 2006, and that a lot of times while he was renovating, equipment would stop, lights would go off, and so Steve says, hey, can you take me to some of the spots in this home, some of the, the different hot spots that you've had issues, or that you've had problems, and so the first place they take him is the kitchen. And Celeste talks about how she was in the kitchen washing dishes one time, and she felt something cold on her hand, and her immediate thought was, someone is here. Then we meet their son, Josh, who said he was about 17 years old one time in the kitchen, and he felt kind of an uneasy presence blocking him from going into the living room and then up to his bedroom. He was getting something to eat. Being 17 years old, he was raiding the refrigerator, and he was taking things back up to his bedroom, and he felt like something just was blocking him. And then he saw where it was blocking him. There was this black smoke, and it started coming in. So, he was nervous to go through it. He said he felt like yelling, but he couldn't get any sound to come out. So, he ended up sleeping on the kitchen counter. And then, Idabel starts talking. And she said that she saw a man walk into her room. She heard footsteps and that she covered her head up with blankets. And then she felt coldness and almost like a face. And she opened her eyes and she saw a face right in front of her. So she shut her eyes really quickly. She said that later she felt burns on the back of her neck and she showed it to her dad and that she had three scratch marks on the back of her neck. They took pictures of these and, um, you know, Josh, her dad, asked her, you know, maybe did you scratch yourself? Um, did, did something happen? And Annabelle said, that she immediately responded with no, it, you know, it was burning. And they compared it, and you can see it in the pictures that they show, that the marks were slightly larger than what Idabel's hands were. They, they're obviously a, someone older than hers hand mark. Um, after that, 
she felt really scared of the room. And she said that she doesn't feel like the house is the same anymore. Mike talked about how they tried to change up the room. Ida Bell's room. They painted in there. They added new light fixtures. Um, they even went out and bought a new bed to try to make her feel comfortable in there. However, she refuses to sleep in that room. Well, let me tell you. I would do. If I see some uh, man walking into my room and then feel something cold and I cover my head and feel a face and then I see a face, yeah, I'm not sleeping in there anymore. Um, guess what? I'm probably not sleeping in the house anymore. So don't blame Idabelle who is probably around 10 years old. Yeah. No way am I going back in there, and I'm older than her, but uh, I can't even believe she's sitting in there in the couch. But um, Steve asked to go up and see her room. Um, she told Steve that, um, you know, when this stopped, she... She saw, when she saw the man walk in, that she couldn't really see details of a face. There was just a lot of smoke around him. And then she said that the man left, and he kind of went into the closet area. They showed Steve the closet door, and their black lab attacked the door. And Mike went out of his way to say that this black lab was a, a mellow dog and that he couldn't believe that the black lab had scratched the door up. And when they show you the door, it scratched up pretty good. Um, and as they're talking about it, a light bulb goes out. Um, Mike says that he just put new bulbs in that they had redid the room and so a light bulb shouldn't be going out steve um gives us the explanation that he believes this is a sign of an intelligent haunting and that he needs to get to investigating quickly now you guys know me and you probably know what i'm gonna say i really wish that they would have changed that light bulb or you know at least made some attempt to look at it to see if you know something was wrong if with him recently renovating the room my first thought was he maybe put the light fixture up wrong or maybe he had installed something wrong so i wish they would have put a new light bulb actually in there gave it some time to see if it actually would have went off or if steve would have done some of the i don't want to call them tricks but some of the actions that we see other paranormal investigators do where you would change the bulb or ask the entity in the room or the spirit in the room could they now turn the other light bulb off or hey i've changed the new put a new light bulb in can you also make this one go off because he automatically jumps to this being you know an intelligent haunting and he uses that term quite frequently but i wanted another reason i wanted to know some more but anyway it jumps to night one 9 p.m um 9 p.m and steve is going up with the crew to adabelle's room he places a recorder on the upstairs banister area as he goes by it he says he believes that if it is an intelligent haunting then he should be able to elicit some kind of response now steve has a flashlight and he asks several questions this is actually probably the first time that i've seen in a show where they've had a flashlight 
and he is actually shining the flashlight all around the room to see if he can see anything. Now, obviously, it's not the first time that we've seen a crew be with a paranormal investigator. We've seen that on numerous shows and noted that on numerous shows. But he asked several questions. And while he's asking this, he believes he hears a voice say, Get out. Now, you know me. I replayed that on my DVR a couple different times, and I never heard Get Out. I heard what appeared something messing with the audio I didn't hear a voice um I didn't hear even like the timbre of a voice or anything like that but Steve immediately leaves goes downstairs to analyze it so he plays it regular speed or regular uh audio and I still don't hear anything. I hear, I don't know, like a space. But then he has it. Now, this is where I sometimes like to call BS because I don't know whether or not we need to be enhancing things and changing things and all of that. But at least he admits, hey, I enhance this. Hey, you know, I did make a change in this because a lot of paranormal shows don't. But even when he enhanced it, it was hard for me to hear get out. Even when they put the words up on the screen, get out, I still, I'm still not hearing that. I'm not buying that. Um, I did hear something, though, in the enhanced part. Uh, it did sound a little bit like a voice, but I have no clue what it was saying. Um, he says this is evidence of an intelligent haunting. And he goes back upstairs wanting it to communicate again. Um, again, not to beat a dead horse. I'm not sure this is great evidence. I'm not sure that this is evidence of an intelligent haunting. Um, I wish that it would have been caught on his crewman's camera and the recorder and, and things like that. I mean, how do we know what that actually said and who actually said it in and all of that. But that's a skeptic in me. But anyway, Steve uh, goes back upstairs. And then it looks like he goes into an attic where he talks about that there appears to be a lot of antiques in the area. And he's kind of looking around with his flashlight and he finds this old ugly doll that he believes made a noise well number one i didn't hear a noise i'm not sure what led him to that old ugly doll other than it's an old ugly doll there were a lot of things in that area but he did choose this old ugly doll and he immediately takes it down to Adabelle's room. And I'm thinking, say what? This little girl's got enough issues, and we're going to take this old ugly doll down to her room? But anyway, him, Steve, and his crew um, set up cameras in her room to watch at a later time for evidence. Um... And then it's reported on screen that one hour into the recording in uh, of the camera that's in Adabelle's room, that it started zooming in and out on its own. Well, okay, this is where I have to have to kind of stop because they take a commercial break. But I'm I I kind of want to stop here. Um, let's go back to the attic thing. If I'm hearing noises up there. Number one, I want to stay up there. Number two, if I don't want to to stay up there, then I probably want to at least put cameras up there. 
and I'm probably not going to take anything out of that room and stick it in another room to contaminate it. I mean, I'm just thinking of this scientifically, what I was taught, you know, in high school and college. Um, probably want to leave and set cameras up there and then set cameras in Idabelle's room. But I don't know. These paranormal investigators have way more experience than me. So let's continue on. Anyway, they say it is now day two. Um, and it's 2 p.m. And so they say they're at Steve's home base. To me, it kind of looks like a hotel room. And he shows that the camera was actually zooming in and out. Then he shows you on the camera how the camera's built and how you have to manually zoom in and out. And he shows how you can do that. The thing is... Most cameras nowadays, and by the looks of that particular camera, they have autofocusing. And when a camera can't focus, it does zoom in, zoom them out. And that's, to me, what it appeared to be doing. Now, we have to take Steve's word for it that it was an hour into the recording. And that nothing walked by or, or flew by or anything like that that would cause it to autofocus. But I would like to explore that more and I wanted him to explore that more and talk a little bit more about that. But then we jumped to day two at 6 p.m. And I, this whole section, I guess. I'm not exactly sure where we made this jump. Steve says that he heard that the Pomeranian residents had issues there also. I want to know how he knows that. Did Mike and Celeste tell him that? Did he hear that from the town? Did he do research? What led him to this other house? Because we end up at a completely different house. We're day two, and we're not. We've just found that we have some camera evidence. We've heard get out. But instead of spending the evening back at the Midcalf residence and actually helping Adabel, we're at a completely different place and we're talking to uh, two brothers, Terry and Dwayne, Pomeranian, and um, Steve speaks to them. And they haven't been back to this house in 40 years. And they say this house ruined their childhood. And they believed it to be an evil entity. That this house was built in the 1890s. Terry states that activity began in June of 1974. That he and his brother were kids. And that banging started on the north side of the home. And after they kept looking to see if they could find out what was causing the banging, they ended up calling 911. We meet Charles Frisbee, who is the formal police sergeant in the area, and he has the files. He said that when he arrived, that he could hear the noise, and he didn't see anyone. They investigated it. Um, the knocking started again the next night, and the police were called again. He has records of this happening every night for six months. Okay, people, I'm going to tell you, if I 
I'm living in a house that's got knocking every night for six months and I call the police they cannot figure it out in this day and age obviously we would be setting up cameras to try to figure it out if we can't find it I'm not giving it six months to try to figure it out I'm out I am out we're putting that on the real estate market I'm not telling the realtor about it but we are out I am not not sleeping for six months it that's crazy but anyway Charles Frisbee says that over 20 different officers responded during this time. Uh, the state police and the state fire marshal later become involved, and no one ever came up with a solution for this banging. Okay, this is where I gotta stop. Because remember... I said this is all happening in Merrill, Michigan, with a town of 735. They probably shouldn't have told me that, because I never would have thought to look that up. But, does that mean the Pomeranian residence is nowhere near Merrill? I can't imagine having over 20 police officers respond in a town of 735 that seems to me to be an awful lot of police officers for a little town now I know that he said the state police got involved but still that seems like an awful lot of officers but maybe I'm wrong and they have a lot of crime out there I don't know but anyway one night, um, the Pomeranian brothers said that they smelled smoke in the barn that happens to be near the house, but that the smoke was gone after 30 seconds. Um, they said that later they smelled smoke again and that there was a full roll of toilet paper that had burned up. So then we get um, introduced to David Lenecki, who's the chief now of the Merle Fire Department. He said the first time they were called out to the Pomeranian residence was February of 1975. And it was because of the roll of toilet paper that had burned. Now... Terry said this began in June of 74. So six months of knocking would have been December or January of 74, 75. And now things are getting lit on fire uh, in February of 75. So this is eight months, seven, eight months. And he said he responded, the smoke filled the house but they could find no other sign of fire other than this roll of toilet paper that had been burned they checked for accelerants gas or or anything like that and they didn't the lab came back with nothing and there was no rational cause of it Now follow me, Halloween night of 1975. Now, these people have been dealing with this for over 16 months now. Halloween night of 1975, the back room caught on fire. The chief wanted to go up into the attic. But he felt like something was pushing him back down the ladder. Terry says that it took the fire department 20 to 25 minutes to get there. And that Dwayne, his brother, had turned blue and almost died. And as Terry was talking, Dwayne becomes extremely angry and irritated and says that they shouldn't be talking about it. And how would he feel after 40 years if his brother was talking about it while they were back in the house? Well, here's the thing. I totally don't understand this. 
Number one, it's been 16 months. Why are you still in the house? Two, the back room's on fire. And the chief's wanting to go up and play in the attic. Three, it took him 20 to 25 minutes to get there. And Terry says his brother had turned blue and almost died. From what? What did he almost die from? Why was he blue? Was it because he could not breathe? Because that's the assumption they're leading us to. They never say. Um, Steve never asks. Steve never goes and gets any hospital records. They don't show us records from the fire department. What exactly caused him to turn blue? And he almost died. Dwayne gets upset and irritated. Hate that for him. Um, take Terry outside and finish your interview, Steve. You have the police, Chief. How about talking to him about Halloween night? Because I'm also sure the police showed up. I'm pretty sure in that big stock of reports that the police had that in there was something about Dwayne turning blue and almost dying. Number one, I have no clue why we're at this house. What does it have to do with your original case? Number two, why are we concerned about it? There hasn't been a fire at the Midcalfs. There hasn't been banging at the Midcalfs. What is leading us to this second house? Or did you just hear about it while y'all were filming and thought it would be cool to go on over there? I'm not following this. And so I'm just like, oh, oh my gosh. So then Terry tells us a month later, they moved out of the house and they had no more problems. Well, good job, Terry. Good job on your parents finally catching a clue after 17 months of people banging on your house, of things catching on fire, of seeing smoke, of the state police, of the state fire marshal, of um, the town police, the town fire department being at your house. 17 months of this. And a month after your kid turns blue and almost dies, you finally decide to move out. Good job, guys. Yeah. You're, you were on the ball 17 months later. But anyway, anyway. Steve decides that he wants to look into the history of this land. Because he has two close-together hauntings in the same area. He wants to know, is there anything residual around? Well, number one, I'm glad he wants to do some research. I still want to know how he knew about this second haunting. How did he find that out? Two, at the Midcalf residence, he was talking about this being an intellectual haunting, it having intelligence, that it responding to him. And now he's talking about residual. It is my understanding from watching these TV shows that they're two different things. That residual happens over and over, and that would be something like the banging. However, intelligent hauntings interact with you and are totally different. Am I wrong? If I'm wrong, or you want to set me straight, 
please write me at paranormalreviewpod at gmail.com. That's paranormalreviewpod, that's singular, at gmail.com. Because I don't want to understand this, not even a little bit. But anyway, we go to day three, and it's 4 p.m. He's at the Holt Public Library where he meets uh, Leo LaFerre, and he's a historian. He said the towns around in that area started back in the 1850s, and the Midcalf home is the only home left from the uh, town of Ava. Leo states that there was a smallpox epidemic that hit in 1873, and they burnt down all of the homes that contained it, or they boarded up the homes until it was over. They made people that had smallpox go under forceful quarantine. And Steve asked, you know, if some of the families or some of the people could have been burnt alive. And Leo says, possibly. Well, yeah, possibly, possibly anything could have happened. But they look at a map and they realize that both residents, the Pomeranian house and the Midcalf house, are on... A straight line they're about four or five miles apart and there is a road connecting the two so I finally get the answer to my question of what on earth makes him believe that these are even a little bit similar and we find out on day three now like I said it's 4 p.m. and so I'm just I'm not really getting this. Him jumping around and jumping almost to conclusions. But then we go to night three, and it's 11 p.m., and he's at the Midcalf residence. Steve decides to bring in Karen Hollis, who is termed to be a psychic medium, to see what she feels in the home. Karen goes into Adabelle's room and she says that she feels male energy. She doesn't like the antique doll and says it has to go. Well, good job, Karen. Um, I took one look at that doll when they showed it on camera and basically said it was an old ugly doll and they didn't need it to go to. And I'm not a psychic medium. So, um, we both agree. Let's get rid of that doll. But anyway, Karen also says that she is feeling like someone is saying, I lost my child. Why is your child so special that it's still alive? Um, she feels that an angry man lost his entire family, and she ended up calling him the Night Watchman, which is how they got the title of Masumi. She said that he hides in that closet attic area, and they hear tapping. So, this whole thing that I've described took, I don't know, five minutes. However, the next timestamp we get is them hearing tapping and Karen starting to cough, and it's now 2.30 a.m. So it's three and a half hours. What all did they do for three and a half hours? I wish they would have explained that or showed that. What were they doing for three and a half hours? But anyway, Karen starts coughing, and she needs a quick break. Steve says that he is starting to feel uneasy, so he goes down and follows Karen. Karen then says that she wants to go upstairs, and Steve takes her into a prayer room that the family has. Well, this is the first time we've heard about this. 
Mike and Celeste never mentioned a prayer room. Adabel never mentioned a prayer room. Josh never mentioned a prayer room. Steve's never taken us in a prayer room. So for Steve to take Karen in there, I was a little shocked. Um, but Steve says, you know, that they they have a prayer room that they go when they feel uneasy and everything. Um, and Steve, you know, brings her in, and almost immediately, Karen pings on a picture and sees that there are three scratches on this picture and says that she believes a spirit wanted to burn the house down. And then Karen all of a sudden feels cold and some objects start to fall over. And Karen says that she needs to try to cross this spirit over. So they decide that that's probably what's best for the family. So Karen creates a doorway in her mind on the wall and then asks the spirit, the male spirit, the, the male entity that she has felt to walk through it on faith that his family will be on the other side waiting for him, as will all of the other town members of Ida. Now, the reenactments that they show here are a little weird and unnerving, and I don't know, I think they're unnecessary. But Karen then says she sees him take off his hat and walk through the doorway and she says that the night watchman may be gone. So then on day four, it's 3 p.m. at the Midcalf residence, Steve says he can feel a difference now. And so he lets Mike and Celeste come in the house and Mike says the air feels lighter. He sees a light at the end of their tunnel now. Well, guys, I think of this. Um, not what I was expecting from a documentary. Not ex what I was expecting from a documentarian. Um, a lot of holes, uh, not real sure still why we went to the Midcalf residence, met them, did a, what I would consider based on other TV shows, a minor investigation where we heard the words get out with our own ears. We saw a light bulb go out. We felt some cold. We left cameras and a camera zoomed in and out. But we didn't go back there. On day two, we went to a completely different house that's four or five miles away on the same road but has no family connection other than it possibly might have been related to the town of Ida, might have been part of the smallpox, might have been part of them burning houses after the smallpox epidemic, but we never checked that out. We mess with that on day two, and then on day three, we decide to bring in a psychic medium who proceeds to see an entity who she feels like wants to burn down the house even though they have had no fires, they've had no bangings, or anything like that. 
she crosses him over through a wall. And day four, we decide everything's better. Because the house feels better. We didn't do another investigation. We didn't set cameras up for the rest of the night on night three after the psychic meeting him got crossing over. We didn't ask her to go back to the hotel and stay there and see if we heard anything. Ask questions. Do an EVP session. We didn't even leave cameras. But on day four at 3 p.m., because the house feels different, we decide it's all over. And we're going to end our TV show? Really? Um, yes, I will probably give this show another chance. I don't, I, I don't know if this is how this show is going to be. But if I have no paranormal background, I have only watched paranormal shows. I've never been on a paranormal investigation in my life. I am a skeptic. I've not experienced anything. Poke this many holes in the show? Did someone from the Travel Channel actually watch this before they put it on the air? Um, did someone edit this? I don't know. I'm just not real impressed with this show so far. Maybe the second episode will convince me. And we'll get to that sooner or later. Um, I think we need to jump to another show our next episode, though. Not sure what it's going to be, but we I think we need to get away from this one. Give this time to uh, settle down in our memory and us not pick on poor Steve anymore. But if you have any answers you have more questions than i do about this show you have anything you want to say feel free to tweet me at paranormal review or come on the facebook page paranormal review you're welcome to join the group nick groff uh portals to hell and ghost adventures uh, it's on facebook um you're welcome to join that group we talk about other shows uh like i said that's where i heard about this one but, um, please drop me a line at, at Facebook or on Twitter or write me at ParanormalReviewPod at gmail.com. Like I said, that's singular. Um, ParanormalReviewPod at gmail.com. Because for some odd reason, this show is fascinating me. I, I am strangely intrigued that they let a show get on the air with this many holes. Anyway, this is Sam with Paranormal Review, and I will see you on the other side.